Welcome back to Beef Station. It's episode eight. With you here for another week is Andrew and Oscar. Howdy. Orbiting high above planet Earth inside the Beef Station deep space probe. Before we begin our long and arduous journey through the stars, we figured we'd cram in one last potty before we go. Keyword arduous, yeah. <laughs> uh, this week we're going to be talking about uh, a couple great Quentin Tarantino films, Kill Bill 1 yeah. and Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> no, Kill Bill 1 and Kill Bill 2. Yeah. Uh, the years of release for those, it's almost, Andy boy. I mean, uh, so... Uh, they no, came no, out, no, 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 <laughs> no. They came out 03 and 04 respectively, but what I was going to say is it's interesting because I'm not even sure that it's suitable to treat them as two separate films. Like, they're... <laughs> they're obviously like like it would have been weird if we just chosen to go with Kill Bill one and then like fucking yeah Jurassic exactly Park yeah, or something. I think if you don't watch Kill Bill two then you don't really have the complete story so. <laughs> yeah cause no but yeah I mean like it, he's very clearly named them like volume right because yeah. they're meant to be like, right. watched it's not a sequel it's the same yeah thing, you know? same thing it's the same exact film twice yeah yeah <laughs> Kill Bill Volume one Kill Bill Volume one again. <laughs> Kill Bill 1 is Kill Bill from the American perspective. Kill Bill 2 is Kill Bill from the (laughs) The Japanese Japanese perspective. perspective. Clint Eastwood, you're a fucking hack. We're on to you. Flags of Kill Bill. (laughs) So should we um, do a bit of a a summary of this film for people that haven't seen it? It's come out, it came out in already, I've forgotten, wasn't listening. 2003 or something. Or something. Look it up, listeners. He's not to be trusted. It's 2003. came out in 2003. Um, I'm to be trusted. (laughs) So it's Quentin Tarantino's fucking something movie. So he did Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, then... Jackie Brown and then Kill Bill is sort of his fourth like big one because he directed right, a bunch okay, of cool. like random great, shit. Great, cool. So it's like his fourth movie. Yeah. Um, it stars Uma Thurman as the bride. Uh, yeah. She was once a member of this elite group of assassins headed up by Bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, There's a name for the group, but like all of the names in this <laughs> film are like eight words long. Yeah, and yeah. So you don't it's remember something like any of the them. Deadly Viper Gang or something. Yeah, I think that might, I think it might exactly be it. Be it. Yeah. Um, she's a member of this elite assass- assassin group yeah <laughs> um and she tries to sort of get out of the game and settle down and have a kid and get married um in the process of her wedding they bust in and shoot up the wedding try and kill her try and kill her whole you know fam and all that and she survives somehow and the whole story of the two films are her tracking down these people and getting her avenged by killing them. yeah basically yeah she's got a kill list with names yeah, yeah, that she yeah. crosses off yeah and so it's like this classic sort of revenge, revenge story yeah. Um, and I think that it's definitely very much inspired by old Japanese kung fu films. Um, it's inspired by a lot. All sorts of stuff. It's yeah. all sorts of different styles and cultures and different things that have been brought together. People yeah. often say that Quentin Tarantino is kind of like a DJ of cinema. Yeah, yeah, and You yeah, can definitely yeah. see where that comes in. Like in Django Unchained, for example, you have like hip-hop beats happening as they're walking through the like cotton fields. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he often sort of mashes up music with footage that doesn't necessarily fit in terms of whatever period he's yeah, going definitely. for. But it goes for this mood. I think one of the most important bits about Quentin Tarantino's cinema is he definitely values style over accuracy or... Perhaps even yeah, substance. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not even cohesion. It's just that he does something. I, I I feel like he's got this um this attitude where he's like, stop thinking about why I'm doing it and just ask like if it yeah. works. Yeah, Does exactly. it work? Don't worry why we're doing it. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, I suppose the most clear that that is in this film is with the um fusion of Japanese and Chinese cinema with American kind of iconography and yeah and, absolutely um, and setting and it's all it's all throughout the whole film and yeah. so of course yeah. one yeah. of the main parts of that 
in terms of the what you what you see on screen and the story and that kind of thing is that Uma Thurman knows kung fu and she has mm. this samurai sword that's her main weapon yeah, of choice. Katana, she and so it, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that's a huge part of it. But it goes into all sorts of different references he has to old kung fu films. The guy yeah. who makes the swords, the character Hatori Hanzo. The character of Hatori. The Hanzo, character yeah. Hatori Played Hanzo. By Sunny. Oh, I've got it written down. Whoever the guy that plays Last him is, he's like a he was like a Japanese kung fu actor from back in the day that yeah. Quentin Tarantino was a huge fan of, apparently. Yep. And there was some TV show that was sort of about dynasties of samurai and that. And each Quentin was saying each season of this kung fu TV show starred Hattori Hanzo. Yeah. And yeah. it would be like Hattori Hanzo the foot the third, the second, the third, the fourth, yeah. kind of like Blackadder, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he said that he liked that idea and so he's appropriated that. He took the name Hattori Hanzo and he says, yeah, so my character's like Hattori Hanzo the hundredth or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, he's taken that. And there's all sorts of little references like that throughout the whole film. Mm. Even the opening shot, I don't know if you noticed, but I was watching the, the making of thing. Um, the opening titles where it says the studios and stuff and it has this like old timey thing that kind of looks like the Warner Brothers logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Shaw Brothers logo. Yeah. And it was Hong Kong's biggest uh, film studio back in like the 50s, mm. 60s, 70s, 80s. They produced like over a thousand films while they were still together. It was Hong Kong's biggest film studio. Yeah. They popularized the Kung Fu films in that part of the world, apparently. And so Quentin was a huge fan of those films and that was a little reference he's done mm. in there. You were talking about the fusion of cultures, and I think that, that was one of the coolest things about this was, for example, the idea of the fusing of Japanese and American cultures. Like, in that fight scene in the club midway through the film, you have this Japanese band playing American rock and roll oh, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I, I think the most common way that that's done in this film, or at least the most apparent to me, was yeah. with music. And uh, in the prelude to that, which is actually an anime section of the movie. Yeah. Um, so the film is told in chapters, and each there's one entire chapter that's like an anime it's an, style. It's thing. an eight-minute segment of this two-hour movie. Yeah. is is 100% uninterrupted anime. Yeah, pure, pure, pure anime. <sighs> yeah, the good shit. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, you've got this like um, obviously uh, proudly Japanese. Um, style of animation taking place in a Western cinematic piece. Yeah. And over the top of that is s almost like spaghetti Western music. Yeah. Um, so There's it's all it's sorts of like old Western yeah. feeling music throughout this, which is interesting because it's then combining one of the most beloved Chinese film styles mm. with one of the most beloved American film styles. You yeah. get the you get the fusion of kung fu films and western films. And what's really interesting is it's actually cuz I when I was going back to, to And this watch isn't this, just the anime scene. That's like throughout the whole movie yeah, 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 you get the sure. combination yeah, yeah, of the spaghetti westerns with the kung fu yeah. stuff. Um and even when uh even the music becomes even more fused later when he involves this um uh this piece that I can't remember the name of that's <laughs> it's basically like it sounds like that kind of like um like the good the bad and the ugly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that's, kind of that's stuff, what yeah. I was trying to think of it's that sound but it's also got that classic like Japanese flute yeah um, sure. going over the top of it and it sounds he said he heard it who was it it was R RZA from um, yeah I think I, th Wu I think it's RZA yeah yeah RZA yeah he yeah. was um he was just sitting in a cafe listening to the music that was going on there yeah and he heard this thing and he was like oh this is exactly what needs to go and kill Bill because he was producing the soundtrack yeah that bit that you I think maybe went over a bit that RZA from the Wu Tang Clan produced the soundtrack yeah, for yeah, yeah. Um, Kill Bill one and two and Quentin was saying that um they sort of bonded over this mutual love of kung fu films and um 
like Rizzo is trying to be like, oh, you know, I have this like really rare VHS copy of this Kung Fu film from like the 70s. Yeah. And Tarantino be like, yeah, I have the master tape of that. And like, <laughs> they're like one upping, one one upping each other the whole time. Yeah. And so he was saying it wasn't like he, tr- he tried to get Rizzo to do the film with him, but it was just sort of like organically developed, like with Rizzo yeah. suggesting tracks and stuff. And like, they're both being on like this huge fucking wavelength about knowing everything about Kung Fu movies. Mm. Just an interesting little factoid. The uh, anime studio that produced that segment was Production IG, who have also worked on Ghost in the Shell, uh, Attack on Titan, and done a bunch of cutscenes from um, Bandai Namco games. So right, they're still operating now, so it was yeah, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> they did that little eight-minute segment and then burnt the house to the ground. <laughs> yeah, well, no, That's and it. it was they were obviously quite well known um, before that as well. Yeah, so. yeah, no, that was yeah, cool, I'm, cool uh, little segment. My point was that they're kind of big names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they yeah. worked on some big shit in the anime world. And I, sp- I suppose I missed that. Your point is that they're like that's a lot of Japanese produced stuff yeah yeah oh the point that i was going to make earlier sorry (laughs) i i sidetracked myself from is that it's it's interesting that you you're talking about the fusion of um kung fu cinema and asian cinema but it's actually uh quite easy to forget that that asian side of the um tone of the film actually comes from both japanese samurai cinema and chinese kung fu cinema which are two very distinct styles and when you actually he's blended together yeah 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 and the way that he i think the real artistry um especially in the in in volume one um is the way that he manages to fuse all of that because it feels like a perfect fit and and the fact that he's taken really distinctive camera shots and styles from those different modes of cinema yeah. And adapted them into f- to fit perfectly into this American Western like production. Western pr- pr- yeah. presentation. It's really, film. really yeah. amazing. Something, yeah. it, something it reminded me of watching it was I was watching one of those um, you know, the YouTube, the, the Nerd Rider YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. does little like eight minute video Is essays. This one about the Jackie, the Jackie Chan. Chan. Yeah, so yeah, he does yeah. like little eight minute video Go essays. Go watch that if you, uh, you'll, you'll know what we're talking about a lot better if yeah. you've watched that video. It's Nerd Rider, which is a YouTube channel that does really great film analysis, does a video about how Jackie Chan does combat in his films differently to how Western studios yeah. do combat. And it's like it's like an anal- it's like an in-depth analysis of film editing technique and it points out something that I'd never noticed, for example, that if you see someone getting punched in an American film, you'll often see the punch from two different angles. Yeah. You'll see the fist coming in to hit someone's face, and then right before it hits the face, the camera will change angle and you see the person fly away. Yeah. So like you don't see the very instant no that impact. the fist hits the face, yeah. which is obviously easier because it means you're not beating the shit out of me yeah, like yeah, this. Yeah. But the point he was trying to make is it's perhaps a little less honest and it's a bit less of an exciting way to watch a kung fu mm. movie because you're not really seeing any kung fu. And he says the, the real genius about what Jackie Chan does is that he actually shows the hit twice where yeah. he shows the impact frame and then cuts to a different angle and shows the impact again. And it's like and split seconds we're talking yeah, yeah, about. Yeah, it's it's like, not like you see Jackie Chan wind up his fist twice. No, no, but it's the, like a couple of frames. I yeah. think the general point he was trying to make is like in the Jackie Chan kung fu movies, of which he's made loads that were never even in English, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you really get to see fighting as it happens. Yeah. And it's a lot more exciting to watch. Yeah. So something I was a bit disappointed about watching this film is that you don't get any of that. It's a, like a Western-style display of the action. I did, I did notice that, especially in that first fight scene with uh, Copperhead. The it's like, it's like a that, fight scene that opens up in like a, it's like a suburb, or something. Yeah, yeah, just this like really pristine suburban <laughs> household. Yeah. Um, and the fight scene that happens there, it, it, those hits feel weak. There's not much kind of like, yeah, thud yeah. To, the, to the combat. I was definitely surprised with Tarantino sort of trying to show himself as this big Kung mm. Fu fan that he wasn't 
doing the kung fu style filming where you yeah. get to see the fighting, but yeah. I guess it's a little a little more difficult when you've got like you know Uma Thurman who isn't really a kung fu professional yep. to <laughs> to convince her to do that. But One it was still that... great, and so that's that's something that it was about the fusion of American styles and Japanese styles and Chinese styles all into the one film. Yeah, something I, something I did notice was that, especially in that first fight scene where there's so yeah. much shit around for them to <laughs> kind of crash into, yeah. is that he didn't show the hits, but what he did show was the immediate after effect of the hit. So you would get lots of shots where, like, Uma Thurman would, would punch Copperhead and Copperhead would fly back into this bookshelf. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't a stunt double. Um, and I think he incentivizes his cast to do a lot of their own kind of stunt yeah, shit. It's fu- fucking yeah, nuts. <laughs> yeah. And and so like what you do get really viscerally and quite impactfully is the after effect of being hit rather than yeah, like you really see it like fucking go through the glass. Yeah, so it goes the, yeah, yeah and like shatters it and yeah. it's like visibly you know in agony about going through a bookshelf or whatever. Um, so I thought it was odd that he would choose to kind of like literally pull the punches, <laughs> yeah. but, but th- show the impact. I think it comes to the idea that he's not trying to make yeah, a Japanese yeah, yeah. samurai movie or a Chinese kung fu movie. He's, he's sort of adapting elements of those films that suit him to produce the film he wants to produce. Yeah, I guess the reason I would expect it is because in my mind, the way that Asian cinema does that feels better. So yeah. I hope that Western cinema moves towards that. But yeah, I guess, you know, you're right. Maybe that was what he was <laughs> used to. And this was his first foray into action, which he described as a very difficult kind of genre. Think, so we, we might have watched the same little yeah, feature. We, right, he, sure was, did, yeah. he was talking about how he thinks that action movies are the hardest to direct. Yeah. And I definitely see like conceptually, if you have a shot, that's like a punch. And sometimes you see the punch from like three different camera angles yeah. as it goes. That'd be so annoying to have to uh, even storyboard that. Must or be even an editor's nightmare. Dude, yeah. there are so many, but I don't even know, like, because there are so many shots where, like, you know, it might zoom in on someone's face and then the camera cuts away. So do you have to literally be like, action, and then get like half a second of footage, be like, all right, cut. Yeah. Like, You'd have to move your whole set, not your whole set, you'd have to move all your cameras and shit like for yep. hours and hours yep. and hours to, to get, get like, like that one take. A few seconds yep. of footage 100%. that all gets strung together. Jesus. Yeah. It must be really fucking annoying. And so Tarantino was saying that um, this was, I think he was saying this is one of the one of the first opportunities he's had to really sort of do like a full-on action movie. Yeah. And he said that that was what he was trying to do. He said he was trying to challenge himself as a director. Um, something that I think was immediately apparent from that first scene that we were talking about the the fight the fight scene in the house mm. was um how many sort of fourth wall breaks there are yeah. and the the precedent that sets for the rest of the film yep for example we don't reve- we don't find out Uma Thurman's character's name for like the whole first movie yeah um anytime someone says her name it's bleeped um and there's um a couple times where later on in the movie Uma Thurman is like narrating to camera about whatever's happening. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> just in case you didn't know what narration was. <laughs> or breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a, a couple of shots in that scene where the camera like cranes up mm. and looks down on the house. Yeah. Over the walls as if it's a set. Obviously it is a set, but like it shows you the set and it shows you them like as a bird's eye view, them walking yeah. between rooms. And I thought about like maybe what Tarantino's doing there. He's I'm not, are you talking about the the first fight scene? In the first fight scene, oh, I when they go into that. the kitchen, because it the does camera that cranes again. up. Yeah, it does what you're talking about again in the um how the blue the club scene. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, yeah, so it shows you like a bird's eye view and they walk between rooms. Yeah, uh, there's one shot know, in through the... doorways that are under a wall from your yeah. Well, the, the one in the club where she um. Uh, she's getting changed in the bathrooms yeah. and then it sort of flicks like there's a light like a light flicks off and then they have that really long extended shot that tr- it's a tracking shot that follows characters through but yeah, it doesn't yeah. cut away yeah 
Um, and it's one of those ones where it swaps between like three or four characters. And yeah, yeah, but they do the same thing that they go over the walls right. and end up showing like th- they kind of break the set's fourth wall. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's it's pretty cool. But I didn't notice it in the um, in that first fight scene. Well, so yeah, it's, so it establishes that precedent within the first scene there several yeah. times um, that Tarantino almost sort of wants you to know that you're watching a movie, yeah. Um, yeah. which then I think gives him a bit of license to appropriate these other styles and really kind of exaggerate elements of the way he's presenting the film. Yeah, definitely. Um, because, because for example, there are lots of scenes like in that crazy 88s fight scene in the mm. club later on. In did he know... Uh, he, he might have just picked the name, but like, did he know the whole 88HH Heil Hitler thing? What do you mean? 88 is like a... Yeah. It's a Nazi icon. So okay, and no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know. Prob- yeah, I don't know. Could have picked. Like I mean, fucking probably. He was Crazy writing the eighty nines. He was writing a World War Two movie. Yeah, he was writing Inglorious Bastards before he started to do Kill Bill, and I think he shelved Inglorious Bastards in order to do this movie with Uma, the Kill Bill film, because I think yeah. they were on set. He was talking about how he was on set on Pulp Fiction and we're just sort of hanging out with Uma and they were saying, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did a movie like this? Wouldn't it be cool if yeah. we did a character like this? Um, yeah, they're out to dinner one night on the Pulp Fiction. Yeah, he was there, saying. Yeah. Um, and then eventually he thought, you know, that would be cool. And so he shelved his Inglorious Bastards project, which at, at mm. the time wasn't finished, writing the script to do Kill Bill. Yeah. So maybe maybe he had that in the back of his mind, but I don't mm. think it was largely very relevant for the for yeah. the story. It okay. might have just been a cute little, little number that he thought was cool. Mm. But yeah, so the the idea of all these fourth wall breaks, mm. um, really highlighting the fact that it's a movie, um, means that he can do a lot of that style over accuracy yeah. type stuff. So there's a lot of like in that big fight scene in the club we were talking about where she's fighting like a hundred dudes. Um, there's a lot of stuff where like a dude will sort of jump and walk up on the air to get up onto yeah, a like high balcony. Very clearly not. Uh, yeah, follow normal and there's physics. a lot of like yeah. high, like stuff where they're clearly on wires or whatever. Yeah. It looks yeah. awesome, and they're doing like flips that are kind of almost in slow mo, but the yeah. movie's not in slow mo. But I think all that stuff sort of means that you're sort of he's sort of establishing this different world, and you never really sort of question it because he's got such a unique style. Yeah, and it's funny because like I I really like um the the moment that I I had this thought in the film was when um he she's, so she's in that club she's just fought the sixty dudes or whatever yeah. um. And <laughs> funnily enough, she... not eighty-eight dudes. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they, they did give a number to that... it later, but I couldn't yeah, remember. I think, I think yeah. um, one of the characters in the second volume of the film even says, "Like, no, there weren't actually eighty-eight. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just no, called like themselves 30 that. or something." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after she just, just <laughs> murdered a large volume of people, <laughs> um, she walks upstairs and opens the doors. These this big set of double doors to like a rooftop garden, <laughs> and it's snowing. And um, it it looks like she's opened it to a to a screen. It doesn't look yeah. real. It looks very surreal, and um, uh, that's where she then fights Lucy Liu's character, um, yeah. Cottonmouth. So when she opened those doors, I thought, right, this is a very this film is is fantastic, um, yeah, and it's very surrealist. And it's funny because we've had a lot of. I, I feel like this film has moments and scenes and shots that are there for totally for the sake of it because he wanted them to be there, right? Which is a criticism that we've had of a bunch of films that we've. I was just, at. I was just about to say because yeah. that was a that was a problem that you mentioned with Sicario and with Ocean's I have, Eight. I have that problem with a lot of films. The idea, yeah, the idea that like, oh, that doesn't make sense within the context of the film. You just wanted a fucking scene like yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do, do you think maybe the idea that Quentin Tarantino has established 
himself as having this largely exaggerated, over-the-top kind of surreal kind of style means that he can do that? Absolutely. I, I think... That, <laughs> it doesn't um, seem very fair, though, does it? <laughs> well, no, I think... So this film approaches that, doing that, with this, like, yeah. self-awareness and this confidence. And it is a bit of a self-awareness, it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I think it becomes a filmic device instead yeah. of a flaw, where yeah. he said, right, you, this is not a conventional structure for a film, yeah. um, and well, don't expect it to be... Right. purely so realistic. Maybe you know? maybe that is the difference then, is that he's sort of saying, look, I know that what I'm doing is nuts, yeah. and so have fun and with he it. he Whereas does that. with like Ocean's 8, for example, yeah. you had a film where for two hours it was kind of trying to look like it was being real. So yeah. anytime it's not real, you're like, well, hold on. Yeah, exactly. Like the thing yeah. where like... It was attempting to, to be convincing. Our complaint was that they were all holding drinks that they must have gotten from the fridge, and yeah. then she opens the door to the fridge to reveal this surprise. Yeah. So, well, they would have seen Where'd that. Where'd you get the fucking drinks yeah. from? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I I thought that this that aspect of the film was actually a real strength, um, and other films do it too. I I don't have any good examples, but um, well, I think Tarantino is well known, or if not well known, definitely does it really well. Yeah, there's All things like films. Pulp Fiction where um you know when Uma Thurman draws the square and that square appears on screen, like, yeah. that's a little different. But it's that playing around with that um, cinematic convention and what you would expect to be on the yeah. screen is not necessarily what happens. Well, it, it's like a self-awareness, I think yeah. you were saying. It's, yeah, it's yeah. the idea that they know they're in a movie. But not they know they're in a movie. He knows that you're watching a movie. Yeah, and, so he and knows he's okay he with acknowledging that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. So there's no, like... I think it's funny because it's a, it actually makes it much easier to suspend my disbelief. Yeah. Like, if I'd been watching the fight scene where these ridiculous fucking things are happening, yeah. but I felt like the director had been trying to make it realistic, it would have been shit yeah, exactly. for me. But... It wasn't. It was really entertaining because I realized immediately, oh, right, Uma Thurman jumps six meters in the air from one table to another <laughs> table and yeah. then, like, swings a katana and a man stands on it. Like, yeah. he's obviously not trying to realistically portray a fight scene. It's funny um, that it really is just about how you kind of present yourself and yeah. how you present the movie as to whether or not you'll get away with that. And also that that's not something to be afraid of. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the style because, you uh, you know, it would be very difficult to do that in like a heist film. Because um, well, I think part of the appeal of those heist films is the kind of like, oh, it's so clever, I could do that. Yeah, and yeah. it has to take place within the bounds of reality. Yeah. Um, but in a film where, you know, that isn't necessarily the the filmic environment that you're going for. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it's a real strength to just be okay with that and and embrace that as a technique, you know? Yeah, yeah. and um, yes, so cool. Every every single moment that I'm watching a, a Quentin Tarantino film, I feel like I, I'm grinning into ear to ear. It's just so much fun to yeah. watch. Yeah. Like Django Unchained came out a few years ago. That was fantastic. Mm, that was um, a good one. Hateful Eight. This, yeah, so Kill Bill reminded me a lot of Hateful Eight in several sections because of the long drawn out quiet scenes yeah. that build suspense mm. I was um, which I think is also something that's done a lot in um, like both Western. Samurai yeah. and, and like Western Westerns, cinema yeah. Yeah. like a, a Western did we need a fucking different thing because we're also talking <laughs> about like American I, cinema I was just going to say American yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah I think the closest thing I've watched is like Back to the Future Part 3 yeah it's, it's funny how I think how influential it is as a style that you can sort of say, oh, this is a, a space western. Yeah. This is a fucking, you know... Westworld? <laughs> yes, oh, I, I guess suppose. the other, yeah, the other one. So. Yeah. Um, but but no, I, I certainly have basically no experience with either of those. Yeah. I want to watch, I want to go back and watch a bunch of fucking Jackie Chan movies. Yeah. Those things seem cool as. This, it's funny how this one movie, Kill Bill, has inspired you know, it's kind of made us think about all this other shit. It really yeah, shows yeah, you yeah. how many different yeah. sources of inspiration he's pulling from. Yeah, super interesting. Um, but before yeah. I forget, what I was what I was thinking about with The Hateful Eight, with these long, suspenseful, drawn-out, silent scenes, w was about how 
Tarantino sort of knows that you're going to see a Tarantino film for sort of gunfire and violence and action and all this shit. And so it's almost like a tease. Fucker really makes you wait for it. Yeah. yeah. And so I think apparently in Death Proof. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, I think, his only feature length film that I have not seen. I haven't seen it either. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen Jackie Brown. I haven't seen Death Proof. It's in one of no, those two. I was watching Jackie a little. <laughs> I was watching a little video that was talking about his use of violence. And it was saying how in Death right. Proof, it's like 45 minutes of build up and silence and like nothing. Yeah, and right. Then the gunfire starts. And this guy that was doing this video about it sort of almost described it as like the orgasm of the film. Yeah, right. Okay. Because you sort of. <laughs> I was about to sort of do it. Like, you sort of go, oh. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna, you know what? Don't know if that needs to make it into the I'm, final edit. I'm leaving that in. <laughs> um, no, but he sort of described it as this like final release of all this tension, and the gunshot is so loud and sort of breaks the suspense. And it happens a couple times. I was like wondering in... to see if you'd make another ejaculation <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> it really just comes out at the <laughs> yeah, end. It goes <laughs> all over the audience and splatters across their face. Just thick <laughs> ropes of action. <laughs> um, and it happens in a couple of his other films. Once you sort of look for it, like in Django Unchained, there's that standoff in the uh, in Leonardo DiCaprio's house, and he's like, "Tell Miss Sophie goodbye." Oh yeah, and, then, and she flies off screen after like a long extended oh, silence. Yeah, I forget that um, that happens. And this it happens a lot. That's another example of like that kind of he knows you're watching a movie, so it doesn't need to be. It's Super totally realistic, unrealistic, like, but yeah. it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Using using that like graphic violence as a punchline, I think, is yeah. like a Tarantino kind of thing to do. Very much so. But yeah, and I think that that was something that I was exp- I enjoyed and appreciated a lot in the f- in the Kill Bill Volume One. There was lots of drawn out conversations about nothing mm. um, in the way that Tarantino <laughs> often does, which it's is so great. Just a sizzle. I have a feeling that's what you didn't love about the second one, <laughs> right? And so in the <laughs> second one, I had just watched this this little you know little video essay online about how great Tarantino is because he draws out the suspenseful long scenes. Yeah. And in the second one, I don't think it ever really paid off that much. Right. Like the first one, the first volume of Kill Bill has so many staple fight scenes that you can go to. You know, like, there's that great fight scene in the house. There's a huge fight scene in you know, the Crazy 88's clubhouse well, yeah, in there's, Tokyo. There's like one for every name on the list right. that she scr- crosses there's off. There's several yeah. huge fight scenes. There aren't many huge, big centerpiece fight scenes in mm. Volume 2 at all. And I feel like it was kind of dissatisfying for me. Yeah. And I don't think that the Tarantino-style thing where it's just long and drawn out and then he breaks the tension is interesting if he doesn't really break the tension in a spectacular way. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why I didn't like Hateful Eight very much the first time I saw it was Mm. because it really draws it out and then I don't think the payoff is that strong in terms of the spectacle on screen. Um, and I think similarly in Kill Bill Volume 2. Oh, I, I saw Hateful Eight with you. I'm just like remembering your reaction to it because Hateful Eight's the one that spends like a solid... It's got At the end of that film, the last like 45 minutes is only violent it's pretty payoff. intense yeah yeah but like i don't know maybe maybe it's something to do with the idea i'm that not necessarily disagreeing with what you're <laughs> saying but uh, yeah it's interesting that your perspective on what yeah. you're talking about is kind of i don't know yeah well i, th- I think it d- certainly it's almost help. like that hateful eight left you with a different feeling even if it's not doing what you're kind of necessarily yeah. describing well it certainly doesn't help with hateful eight that i mean it's great Hateful Eight is good, and there's lots of great shots. That's great, but it's a great really, <laughs> yeah. It's a really Grateful long. <laughs> Stop, please. <laughs> it's a really long movie. Like it's it's like three hours. Yeah, when it, it was originally released in the cinema, it had a twenty minute intermission, which I think yeah, might fuck, have helped right. if we'd seen it with the intermission because it gives you a bit of a chance to reset. Yeah. But as it was, I just don't know how he would have. I don't think it's worth it. You At think, that point, yeah, like, there's no, no possible way. No amount of payoff is right. possibly worth it. Right. And there was another thing in Volume Two where, like. 
he can't do another giant fight scene again because he would have just been repeating himself in volume one. Yeah. But you've had volume Kill Bill Volume Two has like an hour of just slow conversation and mm. quiet dialogue. And it's like, well, there's no possible way this can pay off. So I found myself always getting a bit bored in volume yeah. two. See, I definitely didn't get bored, um, but I would agree that it was a much slower pace. And I think yeah. I preferred the first one. Um, I but definitely I definitely wasn't quite one. as um, turned off it as you, I think. Right. And I- in a similar way with Hateful Eight, I remember when I saw it that yeah. you said that it was too slow and that there, you know, it should have been like a two-hour movie or yeah. whatever. Well, um, I, but I really didn't mind. Uh, maybe yeah. I'm misrepresenting, but yeah, I remember yeah. you expressing a well, sort of similar view. All, all I mean is, I think, I think the act of having to sit down and fucking watch a movie that's that long means mm. that it would have been nicer even if we had that intermission. I think if we'd had the intermission for Hateful Eight, I know that you don't, you weren't focusing specifically on Hateful Eight, but yeah. if we had that intermission for Hateful Eight, the ability to just sort of get up and talk about it and sort of just reset before you have to sit down for an extended period of time would have been great and I think would have helped yeah. me enjoy the movie a lot more. Well, but uh, Hateful Eight just didn't... Uh, I didn't have that opinion of Hateful Eight when I saw it. Yeah, well, um, no, I, I mean, a lot of people really enjoyed it. So I think I definitely appreciate the fact that I'm in the minority here. Yeah. But, um, I just, no, I don't know. I think that at, at a certain point it's gone on for too long and I'm like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. Just... just this scene could have been twenty minutes. Yeah, short. so I just think I and I think I'm in a minority here. I think you're probably um, a, a more common case, but I just don't really have that same aversion to a lengthy kind of film build-up. <laughs> I just don't mind sitting there for like a, a fair while. Um, I don't tend to get bored in movies very easily at all. Even like Boyhood, that was like three hours. People were talking about how it went on for way too fucking long. I loved it. I didn't mind Boyhood. Um, I thought Boyhood was good. It was a complaint that a lot of people had that it was just too fucking yeah. long. But like, if I see a movie runtime is like three hours, it yeah. doesn't phase me at all, um, and it rarely negatively impacts on my viewing experience. Yeah. Well, see, we we were talking off air about the idea that maybe. Tarantino might have, and I haven't watched any watched him talk about this at all. So maybe no, this I is not true. Um, we we're talking Fuck about research. maybe the idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're up to episode eight and you're now surprised that we haven't researched yeah, this, we're, we're what willing are you to talk about things without <laughs> informing ourselves beforehand. Or <laughs> hold on, these guys have opinions that don't yeah. sound very well informed at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought about maybe the idea that perhaps Tarantino would have preferred to make this, um, the Kill Bill one or two, as one three-hour movie. Yeah, and that him having only made sort of three films before this, none of which are on this big spectacular scale, perhaps wasn't allowed to by his studio. Yeah. Well, and I, so he split it up and then extended volume two to have some filler to make yeah, it like a two Yeah, I think hour it, 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 it may well have suffered a bit from Hobbit two and three. Yeah. Because um, you could easily have fit the Hobbit into... The, the second and third Hobbit movie into one movie. Oh, definitely. So, yeah, so the I, problem that people were expressing there was like, you could have yeah. done that in one. But I think with this, you would struggle to fit the interesting great bits from the second film yeah. into one viewable film with the good bits from the first one. So I reckon it would have been like yeah, a four-hour movie well, and I, they were just like, yeah. you can't do that. Well, I definitely think it's because she's got a list of like it's like five or six people she wants yeah, to yeah. kill, right? Yeah, when, when it ended in the first one and there were two. Yeah, I was at like, the end of the Jesus. first one, she's only killed two. Yeah. And so you're like, oh man, the next one, it was you know, it was so spectacular yeah. watching, her kill, watching her kill two people. The next one's going to be fucking incredible. No. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot um, of a lot of slow burn. Yeah, a lot of slow burn. And I think that, I mean, I don't know how much we're going to want to spoil this. I think I'm about to spoil the ending of yeah. Kill Bill 1 and 2. So if you haven't seen it, go see it because overall I enjoyed it. Yeah. We're just being super critical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
All I was going to say experience. was... Rotten Tomatoes thumbs up. Right. <laughs> you know what? Actually, maybe this isn't a spoiler. Because the fucking name of the film is Kill Bill. So when she yeah. finally does yeah. Bill Kill at the end of the movie... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's nice. kind of a letdown, the way that she does that. The whole film, Volume 2, kind of just sort of crawls to a close. Yeah. Because the first one is like her mad and getting even and this action and just being this warrior the whole time and then by the second one you know she fucking kills that guy and kills that guy and disposes of that guy and then finally tracks down Bill and slows down and watches a DVD with her daughter and then chats with yeah. Bill about, for so long and then like taps him and I, I would have expected like a big fight scene or something Yeah. and maybe that's not the point maybe the idea is that it came back to like these two lovers and maybe mm. he was toying thinking hell out right now maybe he was toying with the idea of like rapidly turning the pace of the film and just having this film be about two lovers and it's then weird that you have these hit men that are just talking about such normal human things. Yeah, like, well, like romance it's like, that. it's there. I think it's, I think it's nodded to, um, the, uh, before that final confrontation yeah. conversation happens. Yeah. Um, Bill, there's a, who played by David Carradine, who, uh, according to my knowledge is, uh, alive and well today. <laughs> um, Bill, uh, has a lengthy monologue about Superman as a superhero yeah. um, where he kind of like uh, waxes lyrical about how superheroes usually um, need to put on their costumes and become their superhero selves. Whereas Superman is unique because he was, he is that superhero and then needs to disguise himself as what he sees to be yeah. the flawed human being. <laughs> um, Just on that. Do you think it's very 2004 um, that, because we were talking about with The Incredibles, for example, yep. the idea that The Incredibles came out before the big Marvel boom, and so it mm. might have been a bit weird that they were doing a superhero film, but if The Incredibles had come out a few years later, it would have been like, oh, of course you're doing a superhero yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. Similarly, Kill Bill 2, where he has that superhero, the Superman speech, came out before the Marvel boom. Yep. And so... Um, Tarantino. He's talking about the comic books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, <laughs> yeah. but like, you know, comic books aren't necessarily a huge mainstream. No, thing. no, that's my point. Yeah, yeah I'm so, agreeing. Yeah. Um, all right, okay, cool. So Tarantino goes to the trouble of sort of uh, pulling the, pumping the brakes in that speech for a second to be like, um, to explain that Peter Parker is Spider Man's alter ego and yeah. Bruce Wayne is Batman's <laughs> yeah. alter ego. And he sort of he's like, so these are superheroes and this is what they do. And yeah. let me just explain superheroes to you. I thought, man, I don't think he would have had to do that like two or three years later. Yeah, maybe I think not. Uh, <laughs> Spider Man 2002 is pretty big. Yeah, so you know what I mean, though. Like, and I, well, maybe, yeah. maybe not. Maybe it's just in the character, and Tarantino wasn't influenced. I, I felt but that I thought was, it was more, funny. I felt that was more character development of Bill, like taking his sweet fucking time. Yeah. While Uma Thurman has like the world's biggest truth dart <laughs> in her leg, and she's yeah. clearly like hurting. Um, but yeah, so he, um, he gives that final speech, and then he's like, "So the point is, the reason I did all the shit to you that I did is because you are and will always be." Um, the Superman of assassins, right? I which, think I was by I... which he means, um, you know, you you can't go back to normal. You can't yeah. Clark Kent yourself. Yeah. That won't work. Um, even no matter how much you want it to, it will never. You'll never be successful in doing that. And so that's why I did all the shit to you is because you, it was never going to work anyway. But you thought it would, and you would try. Yeah. And so when they have that conversation at the end, which seems like we're like, no, I tried to murder you out of love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of and like it's like, it's not quite, I mean, I feel, I don't know, having watched it, I feel like if I'd been paying a little more attention to it, because I was, I was really focused and I was, I was kind of trying to get something out of it. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm still not convinced that I'm, I'm aware of the Superman thing. I'm aware of the, the thematic link to their character. 
and I, I, I just didn't quite manage to pair that like with, with what he was actually talking the about. Slow pace. No, with this, the, with why at the end it's a conversation. Yeah, and it has that slow. I think pacing. it's just a weird Tarantino thing that was a bit of a bad choice. Like I, I yeah, think I feel like it might have been been able to be better because like he does I like a lot. the like, five finger palm exploding yeah. heart technique. I fucked the name up. <laughs> um, but the I think Tarantino fucked the name up. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why's the word palm in there? It makes no sense. I feel like at one point you hit with your palm. Right. I'm well, not don't, sure. don't show me because I don't want my heart to yeah, explode. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, yeah, I would be divulging the secret knowledge anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, obviously that's, she does that. It's meant to be this triumphant moment because it's a callback to her training and it's yeah. kind of a culmination but of all of the things in the film. But It's, it's a quite... callback to training that they showed you that she did half an hour ago. Yeah. Like... If it had been it, a callback to something from Vol- Kill the Volume 1, perhaps, mm. like it, she could have killed him in the same way that he had tried to kill her in the church. Yeah. It, would have, it would have been more fitting if she'd stabbed him with the Hattori Hanzo sword. Yeah. Or, or something or like, like that. Yeah. I, I feel like the way that, yeah, the way that we saw Bill die mm. was only explained to us like in real, in real time 20 minutes ago. Yeah. So we, yeah. Which is almost like <laughs> Bill being like, Hey, I told you about this five finger palm technique. Kill someone instantly. Remember that. See you in twenty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I can't remember if it was mentioned in the first film, but I feel like it, it wasn't, wasn't at all. Yeah, okay. no. Um, my, I think my main issue with the second one, and um, you know, again, I liked it. Um, yeah, it was good. It, I didn't enjoy it as much as the first one, and I'm not really sure why. Yeah, but I think one of the one of the main the issues that I have with it shit, is that's um, why. well, yeah. But uh, the 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 end section, the entire um, the entire plot of her daughter as a real human, rather than just a metaphorical device, was well, no. I don't. There was ever you, you mean you just mean the fact that the daughter wasn't dead. I think that the daughter, when before you actually see her on screen as a young girl, yeah, her pregnancy and her having a daughter is used strongly metaphorically as kind of a raison d'être for her not being an assassin anymore. Like right. the the daughter is the reason why she wants to do anything. She th- that right. is the reason why she wants to live. And even that's the reason why she really wants to take revenge. So, so do you think kind of like with John Wick, um this is um a nice little yeah. a nice little um I, connection I think I see there. where you're going, yeah. Kind, kind of like with John Wick, like maybe if her daughter was dead that she wouldn't try and settle down again. She would just fuck these people up to the to her own detriment. Yeah. And that perhaps the fact that her daughter is still alive means that she has a reason to keep going and yeah. try to sell. Well, no, but then well, again, Tarantino she doesn't know so her daughter is still alive no, until right she, at the very no, end. And she, yeah, she she finds out. Um, so I, I guess my issue is that I think it maybe would have been, or it would be interesting to see whether or not the film was improved by yeah. actually having the daughter be dead. And <laughs> that end scene when she shows up to Bill's house, yeah. she actually just has a fight and kills him. Right. And is then, or maybe she dies as well or something. Like, if you want to close that redemption arc. Because yeah. Tarantino, John Wick's a good parallel because Tarantino said, at its very core, this is a revenge and redemption film. And John Wick is a revenge film. Yeah. It's less a redemption one because he doesn't really have anything. He doesn't want to redeem himself. Yeah, exactly. It's That's kind of what revenge. I was getting yeah. at there um, is that he doesn't have anything to go back to. So he doesn't give a fuck if he like dies. Yeah, and uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't give a shit about her daughter. Um, yeah, and that at was no point am yeah. I emotionally attached to it. Exactly. I'm given no time to develop an emotional. In the attachment. same way as I don't care about the five palm heart explodey 
thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's well, exactly well, what it's weird called. weird that Tarantino chose to call it that because it almost sounds like he's fumbling. And then, um, <laughs> in the same way as I don't, we don't care about the five finger palm technique thing, um, <laughs> I thought I'd just take another run at it. <laughs> yeah. still, still we don't care about we don't care about the daughter at all. Uh, yeah. And so, like, when you find out. You find out at the end of the first one, but like you know, when you yeah. see the daughter at the end of the second one, you're like, oh, okay, well, I don't, I don't really care. Yeah, no, and I, I, I wasn't sure if Tarantino kind of was expecting the audience to. That did feel like a bit of a faux, uh, a faux, faux pas. Is that the right phrase? Uh, more like a, a more, bit maybe of a fuck like, up. No, it's more like a misstep. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that's what a faux pas. <laughs> a, a faux pas would have been if a lesson in karaoke sequence <laughs> of Kill Bill. I think the she, point of this, she raps all the n words in the NWA song that David Carradine's put on the screen. <laughs> um, the misstep was the expectation that we would give a shit about this little girl because she's a little girl. Yeah. Um, we're not even given time for Uma Thurman to really care about it because yeah. you know the little girl's like, "Did you dream of me?" And Uma Thurman's like, "Yeah, every night." Um, which is weird because she says it like that. I kind of didn't and mind that. I would have been happy with a little girl thing as a, a way for Uma to have closure at the end of the film. Mm. I just hated that it was like a 15-minute sequence where she literally fucking watches a DVD with her daughter and chills out and has dinner and shit. Like yeah, it's... but the point is that that <laughs> would be meaningful if we'd been given a chance to, to yeah, value right. that yeah, no, I time. Agree. I agree. But we're not. And we're not even given a chance to value Uma Thurman because as much mm. as she says, oh yeah, I dreamed about you every night, we never actually fucking see that. Yeah. And we never really actually see her because she's literally informed moments before the character is introduced yeah. or after the character is introduced. Yeah. We are never given time for that to be ascribed a value if it were to right. happen. Yeah. In a similar way <laughs> that I feel like in the first film, Bill is not a person. Bill mm. is a force. And he's <laughs> never he's never given a form on screen other than like a voice or a hand or a sword. Yeah. Um so you know, in the same way that the second film He's like the claw guy from Inspector Gadget. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and and it's the same thing. It's he's clearly not really meant to be a person. He's yeah. more of like this menacing presence or uh like, drive. Like the Emperor in Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And then Im almost immediately at the opening of the second film, yeah. we're given this person, David Carradine. Yeah. And it's like, well now I know how who Bill is and how he looks rather than just how he sounds and what his actions and wishes are. Yeah. It's it's almost like, oh well now he's human. Like <laughs> now it's less he's lesser. Yeah. Um, no, no, I kind of agree. In the first film I felt like he was very metaphorical in the same way that the pregnancy is. It definitely doesn't um, help that he looks like your cool uncle. <laughs> does he look like your cool uncle? No. He looks like a dude who's going to die of autoerotic asphyxiation <laughs> in Thailand. Like, he just... I feel like he just... I don't know. I don't know what it is about him, but he looks like a creepy motherfucker. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely have expected Bill to look a lot more like because I hadn't seen. I'd seen Volume One ages ago. I didn't watch Volume Two until we decided to do this episode. Yeah. Right. Uh, I expected Bill to be um, kind of like God. What's the name? You know, in in the Daredevil Netflix series, um, Winston, whatever the fuck. Okay, he's this big burly kind of uh, cue ball thug looking oh, yeah. guy who's the no. um the the villain in that tv series and i definitely expected bill to be kind of like that kind of right. scary kind right. of guy so it's kind of weird menacing that, yeah menacing no, it's a very disarming form yeah, yeah exactly i i don't know it just felt like uh, the entire sort of um culminating sequence of the film was really pared back in its tone yeah. very restrained yeah and i'm just not sure that that as you said, paid, paid off. off. I yeah. just think it's weird because he, Tarantino clearly intentionally does it where yeah. he gives these big, long, drawn-out sequences that then pay off with an action sequence. Mm. 
And so to then not do it, to yeah. then have a whole film where volume two is essentially an entire exercise in that mm. towards building up to killing Bill, it just seems like he'd be the natural instinctual thing to do would be to have a sequence and then the next one be better. Because if she's if she's working through five people to kill, yeah. to me that seems like five set piece scenes where yeah, she yeah, kills yeah, that yeah, person. Definitely. Kind of like in Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. You're like, right, like a five great yeah, fight okay. scenes. Yeah, and yeah, so the yeah, way you go better power. and better yeah. and better and better and better and then she kills Bill and then And that ends. last fight scene in Scott Pilgrim is amazing. Is insane. And it's definitely yeah. a higher register than the previous fight scene. Exactly. And know? so, it, so yeah. it, it betters itself and betters itself almost as if they sort of filmed the scene and they're like, right, now what should we do next? What should we film next? As if they like yeah. would brainstorm like How do we build upon this? Yeah. Exactly. How do we make it bigger and bigger and better? Yeah. And so for him to just sort of end with like a fart. <laughs> just get, that that is how so volume like two ends, by the way. Emma Thurman looks straight in the barrel of the camera and goes <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just just for it to uh, just end with this flowery nonsense. Yeah. Just didn't really do anything for and me. I think. Again, I think I feel if you had constructed the last hour or, or if you had constructed the prior hour of yeah. volume two differently, yeah. I think that the last twenty minutes of volume two could have been fine as they are, yeah. but because of the way that it was structured, it just wasn't... You're right. It wasn't the right A and B. It needed A yeah. needed to be different or B needed to be different, but yeah. um, they didn't really work very well, well together, I feel. I, I'm so confident about my... Because with Hateful Eight, I watched it, was like, right, well, maybe I'm wrong, but like, here's how I feel about this film. Mm. I'm so confident that Kill Bill Volume 2 isn't as good as Kill Bill Volume 1. I watched it, and I was like, right, well, the first one's obviously better. Yeah. The best one. The second one, everyone's going to hate it. No, the second one, I think, yeah. has a better score on Metacritic significantly. Yep. And they both have roughly the same kind of Rotten Tomatoes score yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Rotten Tomatoes score, of course, being the more reliable of uh. those two. <laughs> no, but my point is, like... Metacritic's better. Metac- Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes d- disagree with me tremendously. Yeah, I was they so do. surprised. Yeah. And even, it, like, even I didn't have as uh, sort of a, as negative a response to the second one as you did. Yeah. But I would expect the same. I would have thought that yeah. people would be generally bored by the second one. Yeah. Um, but especially critics, they really, really liked the second one. And they yeah. sort of, I don't know, maybe they found the first one a little too, like, saccharine or... Um, you know, this really could have been cleared up by reading any of the critical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the second one, it definitely has some Tarantino-y fight scenes. Go go watch yeah, it. It's yeah, not yeah. like a fucking bleak house for and, four hours. And actually, it's worth seeing. Harking back to what we were talking about in terms of the um the the real impactful fight scenes yeah. and the, 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 the that feeling violence. Yeah. Um the trailer fight between uh Uma Thurman and in Ow. a in a caravan, it's. I thought you were going to be talking. Oh about no, sorry. The yeah, advert. yeah, yeah. yeah no. right. <laughs> the the one that takes place in the caravan in the desert, um, that really does do that hard hitting violence. That was a yeah, fucked fight scene. That, that was, was really great. good. Um, and yeah, it's because you feel all of the impacts. Is they the foley is great in that scene. Like they're smashing through throughout shit. the whole film. It's really cartoony, comic booky yeah. kind of like. Wow, wow, swish, swish, kind of yeah, yeah, action. Yeah. Obviously, like in the, sound I, I don't know if you noticed in the first one or not, but during that um, sixty guys fight scene, there are two Wilhelm screams. Yeah, really, yeah, really yeah. audibly, <laughs> like two of them. Yeah, is <laughs> it like, is this the first film ever that does two Wilhelm screams? Oh, probably not. Ah, uh, oh, I hope it is. Yeah. I hope he was like, right, how can I? Because I'm gonna do the Wilhelm scream nod, but I'm not ever gonna settle for just that. So <laughs> I'm just gonna use two of them. Two of them. Yeah, it's funny shit. I, I heard a story about... I watched one of these videos, maybe it's a podcast, about like the making of the Wilhelm scream and trying to track down where it came from. Mm. And it was back in the day when... Because I, I think the original film that uses it, or one of the most famous films that uses it, it's, it's a character that gets bitten by an alligator in a river. And this is like a film from back in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s or something. And so 
um, whatever podcast this was tracked down the original recording session for the Wilhelm scream. Right. And it's like this guy going like, all right, so uh, man getting bitten by an alligator, take one. And the guy takes a couple runs at like an, oh, oh, kind of thing. <laughs> and they were trying to work out who it was because back in the day, they would just get all sorts was, of, you know. That was an all right impression of a Wilhelm Thanks. scream. Thanks. Yeah. I was just going to keep doing it until I got a compliment. Yeah, no. Um, it was, you know, it would have been like all these voice actors from back in the fucking fifties that yeah, aren't yeah. documented really that much anymore, coming in to just do, you know, do some effects and that, and you know, record them so they can put them in post later. Um, they reckon it's Jeb Woolley, who is famous for recording the Flying Purple People Eater song. Oh, they reckon it's that Jesus. guy that did the Wilhelm scream thing, because like it would have just been one of many days at the office because he apparently yeah, did that work for, for decades. But yeah, I think yeah. his wife was like, yeah, I remember him talking about doing that. Yeah. yeah. Fun, fun little fact for you. Yeah, there you go. Is it time to... Have you got, any, got anything else on Kill Bill there? When when we were introduced to Hitori Hanzo, were yeah. you a bit like, this is okay? No, I thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, did, I, did I ever finish saying um, the Hitori Hanzo actor guy is like a Japanese... Samurai film yeah, actor. Yeah, you did. yeah, yeah. No, I thought it was great. Yeah. No, because what do you I, mean? What, was your... I felt like it was like one step away from like having a, a gong and a fucking yeah shishiyadoshi going off in the background. Well, from like, memory, I, I, he was he. Seemed... I was in Japan ages ago. A lot of it is kind of like that. You get little like yeah, little restaurants just, and things like that. His character seemed like oh, this is. This is exploitative, but actually, I think he might have just that might have just yeah. been like his a lot of the film was pretty handy. on screen presence. Yeah. yeah, and I ended up really liking the dude. I, so. thought, I thought it was interesting that Tarantino the Tarantino dialogue was hilarious and engaging and interesting even in Japanese. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You can get his style because you're reading along with the subtitles. And yeah, that. I thought it was I thought it was great. That was my favorite. I reckon that was my favorite sequence in either film. It was fantastic. Was the Japanese whole the whole sequence from the with second that she walks into that yeah. little sushi restaurant and until like she leaves it yeah that was I thought fantastic. that was absolutely fantastic even the bit where he's like sitting down and talking about the sword that he's making it yeah. was like oh this guy just like yeah I it think was he's, really he's cool. a really 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 great on screen presence um one thing that I was just interested in the first sort of half hour of the first film takes a really interesting approach to um. Uma Thurman's body, where like all the feet shots. Quentin Tarantino is so weird with feet. fetish. One hundred percent, he has a foot fetish, and and he there's a whole he, sequence where it's just her feet. For he like puts five minutes. Uma Thurman's feet on a pedestal above all other human <laughs> female feet. I reckon he has a plaster cast of foot... Uma Thurman's fucking feet <laughs> next to his bed. Because the foot massage sequence, it's in Inglorious Bastards when she takes the cast off. Yeah, and it's Christoph. Oh. Yeah, no, no, he's definitely he has a foot fetish. One hundred percent. Um, feet are but, weird, man. This is where we alienate our foot yeah, fetishes. Yeah, not a fan of feet. Base. Yeah. Feet are gross. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You can have fine feet. <laughs> People have fine feet. I just don't <laughs> want to look at them or... You just yeah. don't want... <laughs> There's my take on feet. No, okay, so... Oh, the thing you had written down from, wasn't from, about foot from fetishes? Feet, from feet upwards, I did literally write down that I think Tarantino had a foot fetish. I think but, he d- definitely um, does. So for the first half hour, like the the, yeah. um, the opening shot of the film that we get is Thurman having had the shit beaten out of her. And it's black and white and it's of her face. Oh, did you... Uh, I don't know if you caught it or not, but apparently... I noticed that it was black and white. The yeah. fight scenes in black <laughs> and white was to get around a lot of censorship in the States, which I thought was interesting. Oh, like because of As blood and stuff. that makes a fucking difference. Um, she looks like absolute shit. So we're kind of getting that, I don't know, like her form is kind of being abused and battered and beaten. Yeah. And then, you know, she's in the hospital and she's like, we get that really close up, like hyper close up microscopic shot of um, 
the mosquito yeah. um, getting into her, and then we get the man who obviously has been... I think literally macroscopic, but that's... Yeah, no, <laughs> that's I know. Fine. I said it, and I was like, <laughs> stupid. So she's... Uh, I, I saw that as drawing a parallel between the, the mosquito and the dudes who will pay to have sex with her. Like, they're yeah. both kind of parasitic, and they both penetrate her body. Oh, yeah. And I thought it was really interesting because I felt like it, it almost takes like this uh, exploitative or like voyeuristic approach to Uma Thurman's just body as a whole. Yeah. Even in the way that. that we see her. So we see the, we, we see her have the shit beaten out of her. Then she's clean when she goes to the suburb again. Then we immediately see the shit beaten out of her again. Yeah. And she's cleaned up. Yeah. And then we see her um, in hospital again. And I just felt and like... it's all not chronological. Yeah, yeah, So yeah, he's yeah. deliberately cut it that way. Yeah, so it's like he's he's... You know, he's using her and, like, making her bloodied and beaten, and then he's cleaning her, and he's making her bloodied and beaten again, and then he's cleaning her again. That is really so, interesting. It's like the process of getting... <laughs> the process of watching Uma get fucking beaten to yeah, a pulp is what he wants I, us to see. I almost saw it as, like, being that sort of exploitative that just made even the camera recording her feel like that same kind of, like, parasitic, yeah. voyeuristic thing. So, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I sure. I just thought that was interesting. No, I think that's interesting. I never thought about it like that. I think, I think in summary... Definitely thoroughly enjoyed watching Kill Bill. Yeah. Volume First one, one better than the second one. Was but great. You kind of need to watch both. Yeah, because well, volume one ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. It's not like you need to know they're, they're how they end because you the know they kill, she kills Bill. Yeah. I reckon it's worth watching the first one at least. And yeah. if you really enjoyed it and don't really give a fuck about where the story's going, you can stop there. But yeah, if, it if would you, be weird to if, stop there. I did. I know. I, I, years ago. <laughs> I th- I think that you don't necessarily have to watch Volume 2, but if you have a drive to finish it, then Volume 2 is definitely worth watching. And there's lots of different stuff that happens in mm. the second one that isn't like the first one at all. And he does different things and experiments in different ways with what he's showing you on screen that definitely makes the second one compelling yeah. to watch. And I'm glad I watched it. Nice. It's nice to have a great run of movies we actually enjoy. Hey. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully um, more to come. And if you haven't watched many Quentin Tarantino movies, all these movies are fantastic. I think yeah. my favorite one is probably Inglorious Bastards. Reservoir Dogs. Or maybe Kill Bill 1. I really love Reservoir Dogs. I've I haven't never, seen Reservoir Dogs in a while. I've, I've just never been as captivated by another Tarantino film. Honestly. Yeah, okay. Django well, Unchained. Reservoir Dogs is really tight, too. One. It's nice and short. Yeah. And it's sort of really Yeah, I like it really as a concept tight. film. Because yeah. I've said this before, I reckon, and I won't go down this rabbit hole, but I think he remade Reservoir Dogs in Hateful Eight. He used yeah, okay. a lot of the same shit. Um, yeah, no, I'd... Oh, another thing that was interesting about this, actually, that I, I did mean to talk to, just speaking of Tarantino films more generally, sure. um, was that it was interesting that he... I, I think it's interesting that he reuses so much of the same cast, um, because what yeah. I feel like it does is it makes his films and his characters in his films it kind of delocalizes them in that film and just makes them more as this, this reusable character in an extended kind of universe, which is really interesting because I thought that it, that's, that happens a lot with his characters, but it, just tying back to the Hattori Hanzo thing, it was kind interesting like the Black to see Adam him. thing where you get like yeah. multiple generations and multiple iterations of the same cast of characters. Yeah, yeah, Almost yeah. like you're watching like a theatrical troupe. I mean, obviously, these players that's more linked. that are acting out different stories. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. more linked because they have the same name yeah. and they're meant to be members of the family. No, I kind of right? know what you mean. It, but yeah. yeah, like Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction, and then in this, it's you know she could almost be the same person living a different life. But it was interesting seeing him do that then with Hattori Hanzo, yeah, which is a completely it's not even his character. Yeah, exactly. so I thought it was really interesting that he used that like and nexus of storytelling. And then he even pulled characters from other places. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was cool. Should we transition yeah. then to a bit of a bit of news? Yeah, we got a bit of news. I felt a little uncomfortable about my perspective from back when we did um, Ocean's Eight. Sure. Um, so I was gonna just 
relay something that I did a bit of research on in terms of Rihanna's first iteration character. and what's going to be a recurring apology segment <laughs> on this station. <laughs> Hopefully not, but just that I think uh, I, I don't like speaking from a, a place where I'm a little ignorant on it, um, despite doing that very often. So, <laughs> well, I did a bit of research. Uh, I found that um, Rihanna is actually from Barbados, which is in the Caribbean. Right. So, what you're um, referencing is before. A couple episodes ago, we were complaining that maybe Rihanna was putting on a hammy Her character accent. Was, yeah, exactly. And we were yeah. like, oh. And yeah. so you're saying that perhaps that what the character was depicted as is a bit more realistic and perhaps a bit more faithful yeah, to Rihanna's think, own culture. Exactly. Than, yeah. Like, um, yeah. So they actually call people, um, sometimes people from Barbados are referred to as um, Nineball Bajan. Um, and that's why her character is Nineball. She's actually like retaining a right. part of the identity of um, yeah, right. okay. those Barbadians. Doesn't excuse the fact that the rest of the movie is trash. No, definitely not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just felt like my my issue with that representation is um, is that uh, un- unfortunately, like all characters in the film, I don't think she's very well represented. But we know that kind of like Euro character right. that the rest of them fall into. Yeah. So I feel like they could have done a much better job of, of reflecting that. Mm. I, I feel yeah. like actually she had a shitload of input into that, which is really nice to hear because yeah. I was worried it was just kind of like exploitative and stereotypical. So that was the, the one polished and well-researched and well-rounded character in the whole film and somehow <laughs> they fucked it. And look what happened still. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, anyway. All right, um, um, news. bit of news. Yeah. Well, what do you got? Do you want to go first? No, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of like kind of headline type things. Um, so I'm not mansplaining news to I'm not sure that, yeah, so... <laughs> There's what happens? It's like a so headline. there's a headline, and then usually a slug line with an author's <laughs> name under that, and then there's a lot of paragraphs that have a lot of information on them. Over to you, Oscar. Um, no, I, and, then, I just, and then ten reasons why Hollywood won't cast Macaulay Culkin anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you know what I'm reading? Um, no, I just think that these aren't necessarily particularly worthy of discussion. Oh my God, read the news. Your reaction to them is probably going to be like, huh. but uh, John Krasinski's involved involved in a a Quiet Place sequel huh. development. Yes. Knew You're it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so okay. I'm not sure what that actually kind of entails. I, I think that they're using involved, like he was probably he's consulting or something. So well, you could definitely have like other parts of that world. I'd be interested to see like maybe a quiet place. Oh, I agree, but I reckon John Krasinski would be directing it if it was good. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, I, I just say right. the fact that the one of the main voices that was involved in the first one not being involved directly in the second one is not a good sign. Well, does this story we'll say see. that he's not involved directly, or is it just that they don't really know much and they that he's just doing don't. something? They're not delving Ugh. any more information. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll those, see. Are, those are the most annoying, um, like movie news kind of stories. Like, hey, like like what I mentioned last week, where it's like all we have is the title of the film. It's like, cool. How does that? Yeah, great. How does that help? In fact, that ties into the one bit of news I got, which is that Keanu Reeves has announced or announced or revealed that John Wick three. It's going to be called John Wick Three Parabellum, like a, like a parabola. <laughs> no, pa- Parabellum. What's a parabellum? <laughs> I don't know. I thought maybe it was like, like I thought it was. I was trying to make a joke about um the the fr- the, fr- the frenulum or something, but I realized that it's it's, <laughs> it's frenulum. John Wick Three Frenulum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But oh, I was thinking it's of a, cerebellum, which no, is a, it's a type of firearm, which isn't a sexy joke. No, it's a, oh, it's a type of firearm, firearm which right. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not the gap <laughs> between Keanu's butthole and his balls. <laughs> That's not what a frenulum is. Isn't it? It's a perineum. Perineum! That's the one! Boom! That's what I was trying to think of. I knew this gag had come together. We're a good team. Thank you very much. Perineum. You should look up what a frenulum is, man. Oh, no. What have I done? What have I done? (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to literally anything else. (laughs) 
Oh, no. Uh, Alan, I'm not crude. I'm a moron. Alan we Taylor. Need a, we need an edit point. Uh, <laughs> nope, you're not getting one. No, 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 no. no, no. Uh, <laughs> veteran TV. <laughs> 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 okay, uh, moving moving on to the next news story. What do you got? <laughs> oh, I uh, really hope that makes it in. Uh, Miles Teller is going to be Goose's son in the Top Gun sequel. Oh, um, that'd be cool. Which is actually a pretty cool bit of news. I don't think you've seen Top Gun, right? I have not seen Top Gun. Right, no, so that, so, that could be a new... Uh, maybe, maybe next week we'll do a little return of our segment of movies we haven't seen. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to try and guess the plot of a movie that I know is yeah. macho men fighting... It's people who fight pilots, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's Goose it's who loudly fighters. exclaims, No son of mine, it'll be a jazz drummer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, shit. Um, no, I really like Miles Teller. Uh, I think he's great. So, um, yeah, he is good. He's really yeah. good. That might even push me over the edge of actually watching the first Top Gun film. The first Top Gun film was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what else you got? Avengers Infinity War extended cut could bring... Uh, I'll say that again. Avengers Infinity War... Extended cut. Oh yeah, Jesus! Could bring thirty minutes more Thanos. No. Yeah. So um, that isn't one that's <laughs> going to make me go back and watch the first one. Uh, here's a good one from uh, our our uh, last episode, Feet, Feet Pat. Yeah. Uh, Soldado director will not return for Sicario Three. Jesus. So not only did Denis Villeneuve bail from the second one. Yeah. The guy who did the second piece of shit isn't even willing to put his name down on the third one. It's a fucking so, Pharaoh's curse of movie franchises. Oh yeah, very much looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if people missed it or not. It's not new news, but um, so it's it's olds. Uh, Villeneuve is currently working on a, a double feature of Dune. Frank Herbert's Dune adaptation. Oh, that'll um, be cool. Which is that'll actually fucking great. cool. I'm really, oh, I'm really keen All the shit he's shit. done with Arrival and Blade Runner makes Blade me really feel like so that'll be fucking, fucking fantastic. good, man. Um, so, oh. yeah, I'm. if anyone's going to do that world justice, which it definitely has not, it's been fucking catastrophic, any adaptations. So but it'd be far. Michael Bay, and if they can't get Michael Bay, <laughs> then he's <laughs> on there. Oh, actually, speaking of Michael Bay. No! Um, in one of the... Um, Say his name when another used... fucking Transformers sequel pops up yeah, out of yeah. thin air. The song that's used in this film, in uh, in, the... in Kill Bill, <laughs> yeah, that one, Battle for Honor and Humanity, um, that is also used in the first Transformers right, when film. Bumblebee when Bumblebee comes, I knew I recognized Mustang. it yeah, from So the point right. of that is that Michael Bay is a filthy fucking cultural appropriator, <laughs> um, and everyone should boycott his movies like they already were. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen uh, is teasing a Trump satire. Uh, so oh apparently man! He I'll watch that. He released one on the fourth of July. Um, so yeah, he yep. released a teaser. He released a right. teaser for <laughs> it, uh, but he's yeah. His next piece looks to be a, a piece of um. Oh, Trump that'll be good. Satire, so that'll be interesting. I watched Sasha Baron Cohen in a fat suit. I've basically never watched the Sasha Baron. Yeah, Cohen me neither. Film, no. So yeah, I don't but think it's the kind honestly, of honestly that, that one might that one might do it. Yeah, um, I'll check <laughs> it out. Uh, Kamel Nanjiani is on the roster for the new. Uh, Men in Black. Oh, really? Oh, man, I'm so happy cool he's going from straight seems like a bit of a perfect fit for him. He's did you see great. the last Men in Black film? Oh, which one was that? The number three with Josh Brolin. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I thought it was cool. Yeah, it was great. I yeah. really like all the Men in Black films, I think. They're yeah, they're great. great. We should do that. We should those do that. Yeah, that's great. Um, the last bit of news is that um, yeah. there is a live-action Sonic 
the Hedgehog film oh, being I, made. I saw this, and they're going to get Jim yep. Carrey to Jim play. Jim Carrey is playing <laughs> Doctor Robotnik, Robotnik, which that'll be good. He just... hasn't been. He hasn't played a fucking crazy character in a while. How does this exist? <laughs> What? Are you, sorry, are I'm, you? I, I'm not clear. Are you I'm for or against this? Fucking fascinated. This be great. I'm so for this, but I just want them to fuck it Wait, so badly. Live action, live action, like a blue cartoon hedgehog, live action. Jim Carrey Who's... playing Doctor Eggman, live. He's not what, voicing so Doctor like Eggman. A fucking xenomorph style rubber suit. I don't know. I don't know what we're in for. Or it's, um, it's going to be a life-size Jim Carrey stomping on a tiny blue I hedgehog. I literally have no <laughs> answers for you, and I'm not sure that anyone working on this film does either. So <laughs> right. I'm fucking interested. It The film yeah. is scheduled to come out on 15th of November, 28th what? of November. This so, year? Yeah. yeah. It's quick. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was going to say, this is the sort of project that's going to be shelved. Might still be. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's coming out like this super, year. Super, super, super keen to, to go and sit Holy in the cinema and watch this movie. Fuck I think God. this is going to be catastrophic. No, that's my that call. sounds fantastic. That's my call. I reckon yeah. it's going to be one of the... It, it, this might just be like the new Mario movie, you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Jesus. Well, I reckon on that bombshell, I think it's. I think that's all the time we have left for yeah. on this week's episode of Beef Station. Yep. Uh, thanks, thanks for listening again this week. Tune in to the next episode. Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash beefstationpod. Yes. Send your emails in to beefstationpod at gmail.com. Yep. Uh, let us know if you're liking the episodes. We're enjoying doing them, so we'll keep them coming. I'm, I'm Oscar. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs>